Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Whitehall Sources is brought to you in association with The Resident, hotels where guests can expect a relaxed, warm and welcoming atmosphere. And you can get that from this podcast too, in fact. An exceptional experience awaits at The Resident's city centre locations and from this Whitehall Sources podcast, which starts now. So with just under half of the £55 billion consolidation coming from tax and just over half from spending, this is a balanced plan for stability. And me and my family better off with a Conservative government and the answer is no! Welcome to Whitehall Sources, I'm Callum MacDonald, this week with Kirsty Buchanan, a former advisor to Liz Truss when she was Secretary of State for Justice and Theresa May when she was Prime Minister. This week, as we take you behind the door of number 10 Downing Street, the Chancellor has announced tens of billions of pounds in tax rises and spending cuts in the autumn statement. What is it like inside Downing Street on a day like today? How are decisions made in the run-up? And crucially, how do they then get communicated? And also, we're doing something slightly different today. We're going to bring you Snap Reaction. We're recording it just after 2 o'clock on Thursday afternoon. So we've got analysis from those who have advised Prime Ministers, Cabinet Secretaries and Opposition Leaders dropping in. Kirsty's here throughout. Plus, we've got Ben Nunn, who was Sir Keir Starmer's Director of Communications until 2021. Simon Jones, who is an advisor in the Department for Transport and the Business Unit at Number 10 under Theresa May and Boris Johnson. Jake Richards, who used to advise Rachel Reeves, who's the Shadow Chancellor. And Kevin Pringle, who's the SNP's Director of Communications at Westminster as well. It is a guest fest on a Whitehall Sources special episode. 
I'm pleased that Kirsty is here to navigate us on a difficult day. Budget days are always interesting, I think, when, when we come to analyse, because so much happens so quickly that actually trying to get your head around it all can be really quite difficult. Is it like that when you're, I guess, preparing for a big day like this as well, in, in number 10, that actually the, it's such a broad thing that it's difficult to process it all? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult uh, to, when you're at number 10, obviously, a lot of this, you know, is is, is driven and geared by uh, next door, by your neighbours, if you like, the <laughs> Treasury. So in essence, you almost take a back seat. Weirdly, it's one of the few times that, you know, like number 10 doesn't exactly put their feet up, but all the all the post, uh, post-budget briefings, if you like, are all managed and done by the Treasury and the Treasury team. So uh, I can tell you certainly what it feels like from a journalist's point of view. You sit in the press gallery for these big fiscal statements. You write copious notes. You then sit for about two minutes of the uh, opposition sort of opening statement afterwards, and then you rush outside for what you call a sort of huddle, which is where senior aides from the Treasury come and talk you through. This isn't a budget, but they'll talk you through what's called the Red Book, which has all the facts and the figures in it. And you'll pour over it and you'll try and find out where all the hidden little greeblies are. <laughs> and it's at this point that two things either start to happen. Either the budget starts to unravel at this point, which is what happened with what we now delightfully call the omni-shambles budget, which by modern standards looks all rather uh, tame, but that was the one with the with the pasty tax in it, and that was the point that, uh, that that kind of flushed out during the huddle. And then, obviously, the second thing that journalists all do, because, you know, these are political journalists, they're not economic journalists, and they're metier, if you like. We all then sit and wait for the IFS reaction as well. Uh, and then, you know, these days... You know, you just have to turn on Twitter and see what, you know, Paul Johnson, the, the great man of IFS, has declared about the budget and kind of take a, a big steer from that. Back in the day, we used to have to wait till the next morning for an IFS work through of the entire budget. But the reaction obviously has become much quicker. And so Treasury right now will be kind of holding their breath and waiting to see whether it's broadly landed OK and it's broadly seen to be balanced and fair within the constraints that they're working with or whether it starts to unravel and there is a bit of it that teases out that becomes a real problem for them. Mm. I have to say, back in my radio producer days, it was days like this were always a nightmare because, I, I, actually, there's an interesting difference here, but a few years ago, you didn't have as much detail about what was to come, and so you immediately had to react to it as it was being... And you were sitting there trying to, trying to understand what was being said and then trying to work out who it was that you needed to then speak to an interview and get analysis from. I suppose this one, we've been talking the last couple of weeks about how much we've probably known about this budget in the build-up. And that feels quite unusual by, by way of tradition, but perhaps it's to be expected because all of this seems to be aimed at CAM, trying to keep people CAM, and knowledge empowers people, either the electorate or the markets or whoever. Is that is that been a theme of this, actually? This is about steady CAMing, all of that. Yeah, so, I mean, we have actually seen over the last few years this complete shift from, you know, uh, sort of backloading your briefing, if you like, about the budget to the huddle and sort of post-huddle, if you like, and completely front-loading it. These days, whenever a big fiscal event, a budget uh, turns up, I think most of us feel that we broadly know what's going to be to be in it. And this one was was no different. There was actually, as you say, a purpose to having that, you know, very extensive pre-briefing, because after the 
uh, what do we call it, the Kamikaze budget, <laughs> yes. which was, you know, just, what, two months ago, just eight weeks ago, there was a need for steady calming of the market. So I think the more that you could uh, to get out, the, you know, some of the stuff that was coming, the greater that stability felt. There was a secondary point to this. All the news in this budget is unutterably grim. Mm. And I think the Treasury team and Number 10 have done an extremely good job of softening the pitch, of rolling the pitch, and getting us all prepared for the scale of just how parlous our finances are in. So actually, you know, a lot of this pitch rolling has been aimed at a different uh, a different market, if you like. So, so Jeremy Hunt needed to hit three markets here. He needed to hit the markets, calm those, and so far, so good. Having a quick look at them, you know, he needed to calm, you know, the fractious members of his own parliamentary party. There's, we'll talk about this in greater depth, but there's a lot in there for the One Nation caucus that they'll be pleased with. Is there too much in terms of tax raises for the for the right of the party? We shall see what their reaction is to that. Uh, and, the, and the other part of that, of course, is the public and getting the public to understand what the choices are, how difficult things are, where the blame lies. And we'll talk again in greater depth about, you know, the battle of the narratives that we now have running from right from now, right into the 2024 election. And so those were the three kind of areas that Hunt was trying to hit with this, with what a balance. And so all of that pitch rolling and all of that softening uh, was an eye to getting the best land you can for what was always going to be an enormously difficult event for him. Mm. Because of the Kamikaze budget, has that really f- impacted the messaging in terms of y- your perception? So we've mentioned the the sort of build-up, the, the amount that we knew in advance. That's one aspect of all of this. But actually, is there have you noticed any other sort of tangible differences in the way things are even being communicated today because of what we experienced so recently? Yeah, you'll have seen it actually play out both in terms of, of Hunt's statement to the House and uh, the Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves' response. Uh, this is the line of argument that we'll see right from now, right through to the 2024 election. So in essence, what we've seen from Hunt is a narrative that says we have made some very difficult choices. We've tried to balance protection for the poorest and most vulnerable but ultimately we were forced into this by global economic factors mm. by putin's war in russia by the post pandemic crisis in supply side that is what has forced these measures on us and we've seen and he said in his statement this was a recession you know that that was born in russia and rachel reeves has got the counter argument to that the counter narrative that says no this was a recession that was baked uh, in Westminster and born in Downing Street. This is a recession that was created by the choices made by 12 years of Conservative government and exacerbated by that short-lived but incredibly impactful for all the wrong reasons trust trust government. And those two battle lines, if you like, are now firmly entrenched and you will see those run right through to the next election. Do you do you miss being around Westminster on days like today? Uh, yes, if I'm going to be brutally honest. I think, so, so, you know, if you are a kind of political geek, you don't lose that by not being in the heart of politics anymore. You know, uh, once a sort of political geek, always a political geek. And, (laughs) you know, one of the things I love about it is it always has the capacity to surprise, to intrigue. I like 
the debate. I like the ability to sort of think about the complexities of the problems that people face. And so on big ticket events like this, yeah, of course I wish I was still there. <laughs> Have you spotted any missteps? That's my other thought. Have you so far? I mean, we are only a couple of hours after the budget at the time of recording, of course. But is there anything that you've spotted and you've gone, mm, actually? Almost at the outset, yeah. the one thing that I thought, mm, be careful here, was when we talked about this battle of the narratives and is this a recession, you know, born out of Russia or a recession born and baked in, in Downing Street, Jeremy Hunt referred to the OBR report. So what comes out alongside his statement to the House is the independent, you know, uh, financial outlook by the Office for Budget Responsibility. It's an independent organisation. Uh, its findings are pretty bleak. He says in there that it's that the OBR has declared that the majority of the financial problems, the majority of the economic problems the country faces at the moment are as a consequence of global factors. That is a selective quote from what I suspect goes on to say other things. And if I was a journalist or I was Labour right now, the first thing I'd be doing is honing in on that bit of the OBR and saying, what else is to blame here? I'm sure... Remainers in the audience will be looking to see how much the OBR talks about supply side problems being a consequence and, you know, workforce problems being a consequence of Brexit. And I'm sure that obviously Labour will be looking to say how much of this they can pin on the Conservative government, whether that is Truss's government and the choices that they made, or whether that's just the government as a as a round and a, and a longer term, uh, a longer term outlook. But I thought selectively quoting from that bit. If I was in opposition, it's the first place I'd look. Very, very interesting. Okay, good. Well, this is a special episode of Whitehall Sources today, such as the importance of the budget that has been announced. Uh, our analysis will continue throughout this episode. It is a guest fest, and stand by, we're about to welcome guest number one. So Jeremy Hunt has acknowledged that the UK is in recession, but he says his plan will help rebuild the economy and reduce debt. Let us hear from the Chancellor. Anyone who says there are easy answers is not being straight with the British people. Some, some, argue, some argue for spending cuts, but that would not be compatible with high-quality public services. Others say savings should be found by increasing taxes, but Conservatives know that high-tax economies damage enterprise and erode freedom. We want low taxes and sound money, but Conservatives know sound money has to come first, because inflation eats away at the pound in people's pockets even more insidiously than taxes. So with just under half of the £55 billion consolidation coming from tax, and just over half from spending. This is a balanced plan for stability. So a few of the headlines that he then went on to announce, really, a freeze on income tax thresholds, so millions of people will pay more in tax as your wages rise. Uh, help with energy bills is going to be cut back. Typical bills will rise from £2,500 per year to £3,000 from April. Remember, that's a typical bill, so bear in mind it could be more than that as well. Extra payments are coming. £900 on the way for those on means-tested benefits, £300 for pensioner households, £150 for those on disability benefits. The state pension, as well as benefits and tax credits, are going to go up in line with inflation. That's a 10.1% rise. 
The national living wage, that's going to increase. For over 23s, it's going to go from £9.50 an hour to £10.42. That's from April. The point at which the highest earners start paying the top rate of tax, that's going to be lowered from £150,000 to just over £125,000. And energy firms are going to pay an expanded windfall tax. It's going to be 35%, up from 25% that's already being levied on their profits. There's a lot more detail in there, of course, but those are some of the headline figures, and some of those things will affect you. What do you make of it all? What is the impact on you? We're about to get into the politics of all of this, but what is the real-life consequence as far as you and your family are concerned? Email us, hello at whitehallsources.com. We are going to leave the door to the Correspondence Unit closed for this week because we want to get all of your messages in for next week, and that's when we'll um, creak that door <laughs> open quite happily once again. Although a special mention, um, actually, to David on Twitter, who said the duty on oil hasn't gone up, which means you can buy a cannon, oil the hinges on that door. <laughs> we'll see what we can do, David. Uh, thank you for your tweet. Uh, we're at Whitehall Sources. Find us on Twitter, on TikTok, on Instagram. Follow and subscribe. Let's get into our first guest. Simon, hello. Hello. So Simon was a special advisor in the Department for Transport, also in the business unit under Theresa May and Boris Johnson. A glutton for punishment, Simon, I think it's fair to say. Um, first of all, uh, just a broad a broad take on, on the budget from today, I suppose, your, your overarching thought. I think a very difficult outlook for the economy. It's a global economy. It's sort of in that triangulation between the difficulties of China and trying to get trade out of China at the moment uh, with the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine and then uh, emerging out of COVID, the options for Jeremy Hunt were very limited indeed. But um, I've got to say slightly more optimistic uh, that he's been able to make uh, prioritization really on those who can least afford it. Yes, there are tax rises and quite substantial tax rises if you're an energy firm or if you're a higher earner. Um, and But let's not kid ourselves. Things are going to be tough over the next uh, few years, especially for everybody. Mm. Does it feel for you, Simon, does it feel very different to previous budgets and autumn statements and whatnot? You know, when you were in there, when you were working in your various departments and whatnot, does this contrast in your mind when you think back? I think this is probably the most difficult budget. I, I often wonder whether they all seem difficult at the time, but you've got to get say it's it's particularly uh, mind-blowingly difficult for uh, the options that are available. And I can remember being in in Downing Street where you'd get uh, lots of representations from business organisations in advance of. Uh, the autumn statement, uh, people would put forward their ideas, you'd be looking through them, you'd be saying this is a good way of spending money. This is not the time where money is uh, is uh, in um, is available and therefore the choices are so difficult uh, for the Chancellor. And if you were sitting in DFT as I did for three years looking at what was coming down the line and those awkward conversations you'd have uh, in meetings with the Chancellor's special advisors with uh, and sit in with the Chancellor and your Secretary of State while negotiations were happening, um, you'd know that uh, inflation is your killer. And mm. uh, inflation this time round is so difficult because 10% uh, of your budget and your working budget disappearing overnight just on inflation will make some spending decisions that have not been identified today 
really difficult in the coming weeks and months when they become more apparent. Uh, don't get me wrong, really welcome the infrastructure uh, certainty, and I'm sure a lot of businesses will, but that won't mean that there are easy decisions to make within departments going forward. Yeah, really interesting, actually. Let's let's consider, I suppose, some of the specifics then and some of your expertise, particularly. Uh, first of all, Northern Powerhouse Rail and HS2, uh, high-speed rail projects going to go ahead. Uh, Jeremy Hunt saying more than £600 billion will be invested over the next five years to connect our country and grow our economy. Did he realistically have any choice when it comes to making transport better? It's uh, a fair point. Did he have a choice? I suppose he did. There's a lot of calls from the backbenches, and they, they certainly existed in my time in DFT, where uh, you'd have all sorts of representation saying, don't do these big, grandiose schemes. They take multiple uh, electoral cycles to go and build. You've only just seen in recent weeks the finally Crossrail or Elizabeth Line opening in London. Um, the people uh, that are uh, knocking on the door wanting Northern Powerhouse Rail, um, they don't want it in 30 years time when it might be completed, they want it next week. Yeah. Um, it isn't going to be delivered next week, it's going to be delivered in 30 years time in its totality. Um, they don't want necessarily high speed rail in the north, they want services to stop near their homes and take them to the jobs in their cities. So it's uh, these decisions are not easy to make. They are the right decisions to make. I don't think there's a disagreement from the uh, Labour Party um, or the Conservative Party in connecting our cities and making sure that you level up. If you want to really level up uh, economies, you've got to make um, some of the major cities in the north of the UK uh, more uh, connectable. Um, and that has to be done. If you wanted to make things easy, you wanted to do things very quickly, uh, then maybe you just need to have more buses, because uh, at least you could <laughs> deliver those by uh, within the uh, election time frame. But uh, the thought of just being able to go on a bus from Sheffield to mm. Manchester isn't probably as exciting as it would be on fantastic new infrastructure, which the government have committed to today. I think for me, when it comes to infrastructure and when it comes to rail, Northern Powerhouse Rail, HS2, these are yet more examples where politics becomes very personal to people because these are things that people want to use, ideally every day or frequently if they're commuting or travelling or whatever. And it falls into almost a similar bracket for me as energy prices, for example, where suddenly politics becomes very personal to, to lots of people because it's right on your doorstep. Um, in terms of strategising around that, Simon, is that, you know, it's an election winner, surely, to say, as you kind of alluded to, that actually we want to make transport better, so it's good politics. Um, but is it is it weird to consider that £600 billion is going to be invested at a time when everyone is actually facing a real squeeze on spending? Is it is it difficult to convey that message, I suppose, is what I'm getting at? I think it's exceptionally difficult to convey the message. And also the £600 billion isn't spent in a single year. Mm. It's, uh, it's spent over a long period of time. High Speed 2, if you... Uh, have done, uh, like I've done, taken journeys uh, on the uh, West Coast main line at the moment. You can see the, the big construction sites, it's very exciting. Um, and it shows that something is coming along. But let's be honest, you know, we're not going to be on a high-speed trade uh, to B Birmingham Curzon Street uh, for many uh, more years to come. And uh, if uh, uh, for those that, have, uh, that are anoraks in infrastructure as as i am um you i've been waiting for crossrail to open for a long period of time it was four years late um as a uh, dare I say, it, as a Spurs fan, I was waiting for <laughs> the Tottenham Stadium to open for uh, for uh, 18 months longer than uh, than I was expecting as well. Because 
new infrastructure is a amazing but it's also really complex mm. and it's very costly but it's worth getting these things right i mean for those that question high speed 2 i would say the one thing i do question about it is its name uh, it's not high it's not in the air it's uh, not about speed it's about ca uh, capacity and it's certainly not the second because we didn't have a first um, so it's it's a very weird project but if you said to people uh, do you think the Romans got it right by building the roads and spending the money on the inf infrastructure you'd probably say yes because you're still using most of them today a, a thousand years or a couple of thousand years later so we do need to spend money on infrastructure in this country we do need to spend it right the way across I'd say um, the Midlands probably lacks uh, the infrastructure spending uh, as much as the North. Uh, and I'm sure I can already hear the voices of your listeners saying, um, well, what about the, the, the Southwest as well? And it's true, you know, we, we need to spend a lot of money on infrastructure if we want to travel around this country and not least in more environmentally and sustainable way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just, uh, high speed two uh, is an interesting one, isn't it? It's not just about the capacity on, on the rail, uh, although the pandemic seems to have solved our capacity on rail problem. <laughs> Uh, in, in ways that we hadn't foreseen and not terribly helpful for the network. But it's the regeneration that comes around it. Mm -hmm. I was I was always quite sceptical when I was a journalist about high speed too. And then I went to Manchester and you go to Birmingham and you see the investment that years out from the, from the project actually coming to fruition, the investment that comes into cities as a consequence of knowing that you've got that kind of big anchor project coming in, I appreciate that Estimate Vay is not a, a fan of, of High Speed 2 and she's threatened uh, to vote against the finance bill as a consequence of it. Um, that would have been awkward if she had ended up as uh, Jeremy Hunt's oh, yeah. deputy and he'd been leader. Um, but, but actually, I think what really convinced me is, is precisely this, this kind of levelling up point. It's not just the rail project, it is all the investment that comes with it. But Simon, I wanted to ask you, so... You know, the, the capital investment is, is one part of the story. The supply side reform uh, is the second part of that. What for you was in or wasn't in this statement about the reforms that we need to see to get Britain building again? Um I think, uh, sorry, just on one of your points you made there, because I thought it was uh, fascinating. There are more train journeys being made today on some routes uh, than there were before the pandem pandemic. They're not making as much money because they're no longer the, the, the uh, very expensive routes first thing in the peak fares. Uh, so things are back. Supply, look, the, the reforms uh, that are, uh, are missing is look, we're going to need to build more homes uh, in this country. Um, I, you know, there was very little on... Uh, on building new homes today. Um, and that's going to be vital if we want to take people out of poverty as well. Uh, housing uh, is still exceptionally expensive, if, uh, even after a downturn, dare I say, and even if our uh, those of us who uh, own homes, um, we're going to see a, 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 the value go down over the next couple of years, I suspect. So that's what the analysts say. Mm. Um, uh, things are going to be very difficult. Um, I'd like to see more investment going into um, into SMEs to help them through to become more productive. I don't think there was a, a great focus today on productivity, uh, something which we know that um, has to happen. Um, it, and, and many times, you know, this country is a, a country of small businesses and those small businesses are not necessarily as effective at um, being able to access the support they need to become more productive, to sell abroad, to to take the next person, employ the next person. Um, 
there's still a lot to be done. There is still a lot to be done about uh, immigration into this country as well, uh, because um, we need it. Um, uh, let's be perfectly blunt. And they, I think the country now appreciates that it does need uh, to be an open democracy. Simon, it's so good to have you on. Thank you very much. Thanks for your expertise. By the way, one question I'm asking everyone, because um, we've got so many of you on today, former advisors. Do you miss it? Do you miss not being there on a day like today? On a day like today, I think you do miss it. You've got to secretly say that. But you also <laughs> don't miss the deluge of, of work. And actually, while you're watching all the theatre of the Chancellor standing up and making his speech, you realise that you never actually had the time to watch anything like that because you were too busy working out the next crisis. So I, I sort of feel sorry for my friends that are still in it. I have a bit of a survivor's guilt. Um, but, <laughs> survivor's uh, guilt. But, but it is uh, it's an, it was a totally amazing opportunity um, but uh, I'm, I'm glad to be working in the real world and um, helping companies now understand the complexities of, uh, of politics and uh, being able to fight their corner as well. Yeah, and indeed helping us. Um, Simon, thank you very much. Thanks for taking the time. You're very welcome. We are so glad to be here and we are so grateful for our wonderful sponsor. Whitehall Sources is brought to you in association with Resident Hotels. Their fantastic team of resident insiders are waiting for you at their ideal city centre locations in London and Liverpool. The locations are hand-picked. Insiders are specifically trained to give you all the info you could possibly need for your stay, including secret tips and tricks of the local neighbourhood. They sound a bit like sources, you might say. It's magic moments galore during your stay. And by the way, TripAdvisor backs us up on this. The Resident Hotel Liverpool is number one. Covent Garden in London is number one. Kensington, Soho and Victoria in London are all in the top 30. Here's what Nicholas says in his review. We found our room very spacious. The Nespresso machine and mini fridge was a lifesaver as I really need my morning coffee with real milk to get going. The staff were very friendly and helpful. Sold. Click residenthotels.com to book your stay at one of the resident hotels, making Whitehall Sources possible. Our guest fest continues on Whitehall Sources. Great to have Simon with us there. Now on the podcast, Jake Richards, a barrister who was an advisor to Labour's Rachel Reeves, who of course is the Shadow Chancellor. Jake, hello. Hi, Callum. Great to have you here. Right, first of all, marks out of 10 for Rachel Reeves's response. Before you do that, shall we have a little listen to it, or at least some of it? It was very lengthy. We won't play the whole thing. But here's 45 seconds for you to get some context. What people will be asking themselves at the next election is this. And me and my family better off with a Conservative government? And the answer is no. is the result of 12 weeks of Conservative chaos, but also 12 years of Conservative economic failure. Growth dismal, investment down, wages squeezed, public services crumbling. And what does the Chancellor have to offer today? More of the same, with working people paying the price for his failure. Was it predictable or, or on the money, Jake? Look, I thought it was good. Her main task today was to ensure that Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak didn't get away with it. And what they were trying to get away with 
was saying this is all about global factors, global conditions, and we're the Tories, the grown-ups in the room, that are going to get us out of this mess. Rachel Reeves' sole job in the House of Commons was to say, hold on, uh, you guys have crashed the economy, and now you can't be trusted to get us out of this mess. And I think she did that really, really well. Um, there are big challenges for Labour ahead, but that is the central goal for Labour over the next um, three months. And I think she did that very powerfully today. Yeah. How difficult is it in the run up to a day like today when you're trying to advise the shadow cabinet, a shadow cabinet you know, member? How is it? How difficult is it to prepare for, for what she needs to say instantly as soon as the Chancellor sits down? Yes, it is difficult. I mean, today was quite easy because there weren't any rabbits out of the hat. I remember George Osborne always used to keep one or two things um, uh, uh, to surprise us back in 2010, 2015 in that parliament. Today, everything had been briefed. We could have written his speech for him from what has been in the FT over the last four weeks. Um, so that was easy. The, the other thing as well is she had some political cover because they didn't do anything on non-doms. So she had a political uh, attack line that she could bring, as well as um, blaming the Tories for what has happened. But yes, look, it is difficult. It's the hardest job in politics to be leader of the opposition, or in this case, shadow chancellor, because the government are able to set the debate, set the tone of the debate, set the parameters of the debate in the weeks preceding the statement and then in the statement. And to try and attack that and shift that is really difficult. But here, Labour do have the advantage that the Tories have got us in this mess. Mm. And so, um, whereas in 2010-15, Cameron and Osborne were brilliant at setting the terms of the debate, but they were able to do that because people in general, wrongly in my view, but people in general blamed Labour for the economic crash that led to the circumstances we were in. Today, the Tories cannot blame Labour for this. Um, and I think the majority of people, although of course there are global factors, look back at what's happened under Liz Truss, and in fact, what's happened over the last 10 years, and blame the government. And that is um, why Jeremy Hunt's and Sunak's trick today, I don't think is going to work. Jake's absolutely right. This is this is about, you know, positioning the, you know, the, the counter narrative, if you like, the counter argument. This isn't uh, as a consequence of global factors, a global post pandemic surge in inflation, which needs that kind of monetary break put on it from interest rate rises we we saw hunt talk about you know inflation in germany being higher than britain and interest rates in america you know being being higher than they are in britain so placing it in that global in that global context and rachel reeves who really really did eat her weetabix this morning and was really very fiery said no the you know the economy was going wrong your management of the economy was going wrong before the pandemic before these post-pandemic pressures came into being the other thing that she was saying so she she was very clear on saying this is you know as a consequence of decisions taken in downing street this is a crisis made in downing street not made out in a global kind of stage and as a consequence of russia's invasion of ukraine the other thing that she's done uh, which I thought was was clever. They've moved away very rapidly, and I think rightly from. Uh, I mean, as tempting as it is to make a lot of hay out of the trust government and the, uh, the and the and the Kamakwazi budget, it's very important for Labour to stick this on twelve years of a Conservative government. You can't say everything that is wrong with the economy right now is a consequence of this. You can certainly say that 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 budget made things considerably worse. But actually, where they're positioning this is 12 years of a Conservative government. And if you look at the OBR figures, they say that income levels have fallen. They've fallen for the sharp, 
sharpest level on record and they are now kind of disposable household income levels are what they were basically kind of 10 years ago so you know 12 years of conservative uh, rule have left households you know no better than they were like a decade ago mm. so there's plenty for her to go on from an attack line but it's very very important to get this central message cut across here that that this this economic crisis was made in Downing Street. It wasn't made out on a global stage. It wasn't made in Russia. And I think she was very good actually on pushing that today. She was she was really impressive, probably the most impressive I've seen in quite some time in terms of an opposition response to a to an autumn statement to a budget. And actually, knowing Rachel, that's been coming. She came into Parliament in 2010 and she's incredibly ambitious. She's incredibly bright. She wants to be in government. She wants to be the first female chancellor. That's her ambition. Um, and I think she's been incredibly frustrated that what she feels the Tories have got away with it for too long. Uh, whatever your political positioning, she thinks the Tories management of the economy over the last 10 years has been pretty disastrous. And yet they have always been seen as more competent, more trusted on the economy until very recently. And that frustration, I think, uh, came to the fore today and was channeled in an impressive way. Mm. Um, and I do think it was a significant moment. It's not, there's a long way to go to the next general election, but I do think it was a significant moment that Rachel and the reception she's got from commentators, which is important in these things, um, from across the political spectrum is that she is an impressive, serious person whose economic analysis here is right. Um, and it does remind me, and I must admit I was too young at the time, but from reading back about it, Gordon Brown, a shadow chancellor, between uh, 92 and 97, there were certain responses to budget, certain statements that ha uh, are chronicled um, as being moments where at least the commentariat, maybe not the public, but the commentariat who are important, um, suddenly think, hold on, we've got a serious figure here and someone who is really credible to be chancellor. Mm. And, and actually, ultimately it does cut through to the public because we're seeing that in opinion polls. This isn't a recent thing. This isn't just a trust and, um, quasi quarting thing, that Labour have been more trusted in the economy for quite some time, albeit narrowly, but quite some time. And if you look at between 2010 and 2015, when I was working for the party, that was never the case with Ed Miliband and Ed Balls. We were never more trusted Cameron and Osborne on uh, the economy. And in my view, that's probably the most important metric when you're looking at opinion polls. Forget about voting intention, forget about uh, leaders and trust. I mean, they are all important, but actually, who is trusted with the public purse? Uh, and at the moment, that's Labour. And I think today um, will only strengthen that. Is there a, um, I, I don't want to say an elephant trap, but I'm going to say, is there, a, <laughs> is there an elephant trap in here for Labour, though? And you, you mentioned 97. Obviously, when Tony Blair came in, one of the things that Labour did in opposition was, was promise to stick to Ken Clark's spending plans to reassure the public that they were sound on the economy and they could be trusted with the economy. And the only way they could do it at the time was to say we will follow a conservative kind of framework. Now, obviously, because all the spending cuts are backloaded, they're past 24 election in this, all the tax raises that are in this autumn statement are front loaded, all the spending cuts are backloaded. The obvious question for journalists now going to Labour is, if the economy doesn't improve and if there is a need to continue with these spending cuts post 24 will you continue to do them or will you borrow more and if you continue to do them then 
you know, how are you economically any different? And if you don't and say you're going to borrow more, can we really trust you with the economy? Has mm. it caught them in that kind of dilemma? Well, I, so there is a trap there and there is always a political trap for oppositions there. Uh, uh, what, and, and at the moment, Labour hasn't set out its full answer. I mean, that's perfectly clear. But I think it will do over the next two years. But I think it's slightly different between 2010 and 2015, where Ed Miliband and Ed Balls had this tortured attempt to say, do we stick to Tory spending plans? Do we just cut a bit less? Do we take on austerity uh, on an ideological and intellectual level? And it, they never really came up the answer and no one really knew what the answer was, including people who work for them. Um, so the public certainly didn't. I think the difference here is that I think Rachel Rees, and one of the really interesting things of her response today, she actually sort of fronted up to this. She said, the Tories tried to set a trap for us. We're not going to fall into this because of these three reasons. Now, Kirsty, that doesn't answer your question as to what the final position will be. I noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 but I think Rachel, and it's interesting, you know, she was Shadow Chief Secretary during that 2010-15 Parliament, and she will be very aware of those traps and very, I think, deft in dealing with them. But look, where Labour will end up in terms of their fiscal rules, um, their spending commitments at the next election is a massive challenge for the party. But at the moment, that's why I said at the outset, the sole and main purpose of today was to pin this on the Tories. Make sure they don't get away with this. Those questions will come, don't you worry, especially with the press uh, as it is, they will come. But um, Rachel, for the time being, I think, has enough capital to keep whacking the Tories for a bit um, before our spending plans will have to be set out in a bit more uh, detail. Jake, it is so good to speak to you. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining the podcast today. It's great. A pleasure. That was really fun. Kevin, hello. Ah, hello there. It's great to have you with us. This is Kevin Pringle, uh, former Director of Communications for the SNP at Westminster. Kevin, really interesting to get your take, actually, because with all um, economic uh, announcements from Westminster. There, there's a bit of working through to be done in terms of what then happens for Scotland, how the SNP engage with it, um, and how much I suppose they kind of they bash the Tories for for doing what they don't want them to do. Um, what what would be your strategy after today's budget, as far as the SNP is concerned? Well, I think there's always a bit of initial skirmishing. So we've heard that there's to be Barnet consequentials on top of education spending announced for England and the SNP have already responded to that by saying actually the Scottish government's budget has already been eroded by a greater extent than the Barnet money coming. So I think you always have to have that in the initial stages to basically set the scene and to, if you like, win the terms of the argument. Is this basically good for Scotland? Is it bad for Scotland? I think when it's clearly very difficult from the perspective of the whole of the UK because we can argue about specific measures, about specific timescales, the phasing of some of the announcements, but essentially this is a, an autumn statement, a budget package for an age of austerity. Then clearly it's going to be re relatively easy for the SNP, as indeed for other opposition parties, to say this is essentially a bad deal. The SNP will argue it's a bad mm -hmm. deal for Scotland and try to get that um, planted in the, uh, in the public, public mind in order to then seek to win the argument about, well, what should be done differently. And clearly the SNP's got a very clear message there in terms of, well, let's just uh, get out of this, away from Tory government decisions in favour of an independent Scotland within the European Union. 
Did you ever struggle in your time, and do you think the SNP could struggle now, in that by repeating the same thing over and over again, i.e. this is a bad deal, which is a line they use frequently, and that's fine, that's what they believe, and that's all totally acceptable, but actually does that just wear off? Do people stop listening to it when it's the same thing over and over? Always struggled in my time. Never now. <laughs> when you look at election results, I think that's a fair observation. Although I had some quite good campaigns I was involved in too. Uh, it's, a, it's a balance, isn't it? It really is. There's a great merit in having consistency of message. I think it comes down to how you deploy it. Mm. You need a consistent message. And I think it was interesting that the um, SNP reaction to the autumn, autumn statement was out uh, just slightly... Uh, lot after uh, Jeremy Hunt had actually sat down on the, the green benches. So clearly, because the message is clear, because it's consistent, it's pretty easy to do that. It, it, of course, it, it, can, it, can be, it can be. It can be difficult, but you just have to find ways and means of essentially saying the same thing with different illustrations and a different context. And it's very striking, certainly in the run-up to this budget today, that the SNP have been focusing very heavily on the comment by Michael Saunders a few days ago, the former member of the Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee, where he basically said, if it hadn't been for Brexit, then we probably wouldn't be looking at an austerity budget of any shape or form this week. So that fits very well into the SNP's perspective and fits very well into the argument to say, it's a bad deal, independence would be better, and we should be back in the European Union. So I think you need a consistency. It's very possibly uniquely advantageous, actually, that the SNP have that, because at the end of the day, its answer, its solution is always going to be independence would be better. Mm. And it's harder, I think, sometimes for the other opposition parties to know exactly where to pitch their argument in terms of the the many facts, the many figures that have come out of the the budget statement, and actually even more interestingly in some ways that have come out of the OBR report this afternoon as well. For the SNP, they can kind of cut through a lot of that and just say, well, independence is really where Scotland should be. It would be better than this. Yeah. I, just, I wonder the impact. I was seeing one analysis um, that the Chancellor's cut to the additional rate threshold of income tax for, for very rich people from £150,000 to £125,000 a year will not, by default, apply in Scotland. But... If the Scottish government follows suit, then that would increase the number of Scottish income taxpayers at the top rate by 12,000, up from 22,000 people currently, and would raise around £40 million in revenue. There's something in that, isn't there, Kevin, that actually this could be a source of inspiration in some measures for for Nicola Sturgeon to follow? I think just as the SNP benefits from clarity on the constitution... It does actually benefit, I think anyway, it benefits from having clarity, if you like, on that left-right social and economic policy agenda, such that it would not be instinctively attracted mm. to not a, you know, essentially passing on a tax-raising measure that falls on the broadest of shoulders. Probably a, a more interesting issue, in a sense, and a... Uh, an aspect of Scotland's economy that is not dealt with easily or quickly is the fact that the numbers that you just referred to there about the numbers of people paying tax at that level are actually relatively small Mm. in Scotland. You could fit them into 
you know, essentially a football stadium. Yeah. So there's a bigger argument to be had about how do we actually grow the economy? How do we build economic success? How do we attract investment and greater economic activity into Scotland and grow in Scotland such that we've actually got more people paying higher tax, uh, you know, regardless of whatever the particular thresholds or rates happen to be. And again, I suspect from an SNP perspective, that would take them quite quickly back into the issue of being in the European single market, you know, be, being in a effectively a domestic market that is seven times the size of the UK market, for example. And they would argue that's economically a better place to be, albeit it would not necessarily be a simple or straightforward place to get to, but nonetheless, the journey would be worth it because from an economic perspective, mm. it would be a better, more vibrant, more advantageous place to be so that actually there would be a higher number of people paying tax at that level compared to these relatively small numbers that you quoted. Yeah, I understand. We were talking at the, uh, Kevin, we were talking at the top of this podcast about uh, where we thought potential problems might be in the presentation of this autumn statement. and. We were saying that one of the issues was selective briefing from the OBR's report, and obviously Jeremy Hunt has flagged this point about the OBR determining, concluding that global factors are the biggest single problem in terms of our of our economic squeeze right now. But actually, it goes on to say Brexit has a significant adverse impact on UK trade and has contributed to reducing trade volumes and business relationships between the UK and the EU firms. So I do think it was a, to some certain extent, almost a misstep to, 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 mm. to peg so much on that bit when we all knew that there was a second bit to that which would mm. be more mm -hmm. helpful to opposition. And, and so it has come to pass. And, and how, much of, uh, how much of this is going to sort of help in terms of the, of the, of the campaign between now and sort of referendum uh, to get back? Because it, the, the, the country is still pretty evenly split on its on its views on this, isn't it? Still pretty much 50-50 and nothing really seems to shift it. Do you think a good old, really hardened economic crisis might be the thing that gets it over the line? It could do, only, of course, on the basis that people are persuaded that there is that better place to get to mm. and that the alternative for Scotland, the, the, the different trajectory, if you like, for the country would be not in the direction of, as the SNP would say, economic decline essentially as part of the UK but to a much better place as Scotland independent within the European Union within the single market so it can go two ways you know when you get difficult economic times sometimes it can make people quite cautious about change um, but I think if if there's a, a clear narrative which let's face both the Labour Party and the SNP and the Liberal Democrats, all the opposition parties want to get across to people. They do want to get across the clear nar narrative that yes, there's the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Yes, there's still the hangover of COVID. We're still actually in a, a, a pandemic as we, as we speak. But because the mini budget, that extraordinary period in UK politics of the, the Liz Trust Premiership and the quasi-quarting mini budget, had such a dramatic impact and cut through to such an extent across the whole population. There's a very clear perception, I think, now that actions of the government at Westminster have got a very significant role 
to play in what's happened and to play in the economic downturn that we're experiencing and therefore are you know, essentially responsible, as Alison, Alison Thule said in the chamber today, mm. the £30 billion hit to the UK from the so-called mini-budget, pretty big, pretty big hit, <laughs> is being paid for through tax hikes, through spending cuts. So it's not just the sort of prevailing conditions of the world. It's not the horrific Russian invasion of Ukraine solely. It's not COVID. It's actually actions and decisions by government. And if that can be planted, if you like, in the public mind in Scotland, then the issue becomes, well, let's get to a situation where we can take different decisions, where these sorts of decisions are not taken at Westminster, where they've been taken badly and chaotically, yeah. particularly over that Liz Truss period, but taken in a more orderly, responsive manner, of course, to the Scottish electorate in an independent parliament. So it all comes down, I think, to persuading people that it's about what politicians do that has made the difference here, has made the difference in a bad way, if you like, at Westminster, mm. can make a difference in a better way in Scotland. And then if you can win that argument, you are potentially in a situation where you can win the argument to say, let's take decisions here mm. in our own parliament and not have them taken badly and chaotically at Westminster. Kevin, just a, it's so good to speak to you. Just a very quick final one. We're asking everyone today: Do you miss being in and around Westminster on a day like today, and the chaos of a and and you know political point scoring the aftermath of a budget and autumn statement? Yes, I mean I think you do always. <laughs> you all miss, miss it. That, You're all missing it. I think you always do. But the only <laughs> thing I ever say when people say, "Do you miss working in politics?" I say. Not in the evenings and at weekends. Uh, <laughs> yes. and I think that's probably the difference because, as you know, as we all know, it's just such a, and it's probably even more so now than even when I was working in politics, but almost anything can happen yeah. at any time or yeah. any day. And uh, so it's, you know, it, it, it's just pretty kind of all in. It's so it's nice to, to, to watch, to participate, to be massively interested, but not to be... Yeah. Sort of it's a very good point, Kevin. I, any point. Yeah, it's a very good point. I miss smoking, but it doesn't mean it's good for me, right? <laughs> well, indeed, absolutely. I'm glad you've given up. <laughs> Kevin, thank you very much, Kevin, for giving us your time today. It's so good to have you on. Pleasure. Thank you. As our special episode of Whitehall Sources continues, we welcome Ben Nunn, former Director of Communications for Keir Starmer and the Labour Party. Ben, hello. Hello. Great. Good to be yeah, it's great to have you. Thank you very, very much. I suppose, first of all, when we consider what has been announced today, for the next two years, Jeremy Hunt has announced that the government will overall be spending more money, not less. And I suppose that's an interesting quirk for the Labour Party to contend with in all of this. Perhaps, but I would add that that's been a quirk that's existed um, for a number of years. I mean, I think this is a government, you know, how, I can't remember how many prime ministers we've had in the last couple of years, but they've all been big spenders. Um, Boris was a big spender. Uh, um, Liz was a big spender, but she was a big borrower, and that, that that's one of the reasons that got her into trouble. And um, Jeremy Hunt's a, a big spender. So, the spe you know, spending is one thing the big and i've long long believed this and um believe this for a number of years now that the debate the economic debate in this country will become a debate about growth about how do you get the economy growing again and how do you get it growing substantially because 
the, the, we have got a chronic growth problem in this country. And I don't, I don't say this as a party political point. It, it's just a fact. We have, a, we have very stagnant growth. And, and it was you know, something I argued when I was working in the Labour Party. It's what I've said since. Um, Keir did do a big speech on growth earlier in the year. And it was something actually Liz, to her credit, um, tried to make a big argument about saying it's about growth. So the argument, I think, is going to be a lot less about how much money you spend and it's how you get in the economy growing. That's mm. where I think the new debate is. Mm. That's interesting. And do you see, I suppose, what stage are we at in that debate? You describe it as a new debate. I'm just wondering, is Labour prepared for that debate? Yes, I think they are. I think they are because I think it is something that both Keir and Rachel have recognised as the debate for the next general election. I think if you look at the speech Keir gave back in July of this year, he said, look, the issue I want to fight the election on is the economy and the mission of my next government will be to get the economy growing. So I think they are ready for that because they recognise that that is the, uh, the narrative and the attack line and the argument they need to make. And I think the programme policies that they're putting out at the moment are all geared towards that growth agenda, particularly the green energy stuff. So I think we are, I think, I think we're, the, the debate has begun and I think we're in the debate. I think what's interesting, I think both parties will try and fight on that terrain in, in 2024. And so both parties will be saying, you trust us, we can get the economy growing again. Um, and it will be, you know, it will be a judgment about who the voters ultimately trust with the economy. Mm. What I would say, and just what I do think is important, I don't think we can underestimate the damage um, the Liz Truss and Quasi Quaten budget of a couple of weeks ago has done to the Conservatives' brand on the economy. That is the biggest drag on the Conservatives' poll lead at the moment, I think, because it was such a seismic moment within within not just politics but people's lives. People felt that shudder when they saw the impact that it was happening on mortgages and the ripples it was having in around the economy. And you know, others will say, well, it wasn't just that budget, there was structural problems, et cetera, et cetera. In political terms, that mini budget, which <laughs> was not mini, that budget of a couple of weeks ago is what's done the most structural damage to the, conserv structural damage to the Conservatives' economic credibility. I think- it's on, Sorry, no, Karen, I was just going to say on that, Kirsty, and feel piling after. But I was going to say with with the mini budget, it, what the one thing I think about it is it's memorable. So yep. while there may have been an erosion in some people's views of economic credibility over however many years, that is a is a peak flashpoint yeah. that sticks in people's minds. What were you going to say, Kirsty? Go on. Yeah, it was memorable, but you know, all memories, even nightmarish ones, fade. <laughs> Um, and I think sort of what I'd be interested in, Ben, from your point of view is, you know, how much do you stick this on, you know, your trust mortgage premium and how much of this do you stick on 12 years of conservative economic, uh, you know, incompetence or, or however they want to bill it? That, for me, is the tension now that Labour's got because, you know, the, the memories of trust and the Kamikaze budget will fade and yeah. that is a sort of inherent tension of if you pin it too much on trust, then, well, that's okay because she's gone and you've got this sound money guy now as your prime minister. So, you know, all is good and well in the world. Well, <laughs> you know, within reason. Uh, and, and where would you, if you were still there, where would you be aiming to pitch it? 
I would pitch it on the Conservative Party. I don't, I'd, I'd be totally happy if um, the Labour Party never said Liz Truss ever again. It's got to be about the Conservative Party. And the pitch would be the Conservatives crashed the economy. And after 10 years, or over 10 years in power, we've got higher mortgages, higher inflation, higher interest rates, higher unemployment because of their economic incompetence. That's how I would brand it. I think it, it, there is, I, I see what you mean about the tension because you putting it on the 12 years or just that moment, you've got to bring the two together, but it's they crash the economy and the public will still feel that. It's because they've been in for 10 years, that they've lost their you know instinct on the economy. And this is the human consequence it's having. Mm. And I would just repeat that day in, day out, keep it going, keep it going. That That's how I'd frame it. Can I ask you a, a, a question in the hopes of getting an honest answer out of a straight answer on it? Do you think that the, that it is now unassailable, a, a Labour victory, regardless of margin, but do you think a Labour victory is unassailable now? I think a... I think it's full... The reason I'm not going to say uh, give a yes or no is because he's <laughs> <laughs> okay. been in this game too long. Yeah. He knows what he's hear, doing. <laughs> hear, hear me out. The reason I say it is because um, uh, complacency is the most dangerous thing in politics, particularly the Labour Party. The Labour Party loses repeatedly loses elections, and it's the reason we lose elections is because the Labour Party's not won it, and so complacency. Um, However, I've always, and I've generally believed this, I've always thought Keir would win the next general election. The reason for that, and I thought this back in 2020, and I, and I think even more now, but back in 2020 when he won, we looked at the, we looked at the kind of, you know, where are we going to be in four years' time? Four years' time, the Conservatives would have been in power for 14 years. They have presided over an economic decline even before we've had what we've had the last couple of weeks. The economy was slowing quite, it was stagnant. People weren't feeling prosperity. So there was an economic decline happening. And the Conservative parties were fundamentally divided. There was divisions within the Conservative Party that were feeling much more, um, uh, which were becoming clearer by the day. And divided parties that have been in power for donkey's years and presided over an economic decline don't tend to win elections. So I've always thought the fundamentals were actually more in Labour's favours than people ever gave thought. Um, I do now think he, I just still, I do believe um, a Labour victory is on the cards and I think the conserv what the damage the Conservatives have done to themselves and the economy has, you know, you would say made that more likely, but, but, but it is two years. It is still two years, and if we've learned anything in the last two years, last 20 years, it's things, you know, move very quickly and politics is very volatile. Mm. Isn't that the truth? I want to put That's to a you... long way of saying yes. <laughs> <laughs> I want to put to you something that Kirsty flagged <laughs> earlier, um, which is this, that does Labour now find itself in a place that is between promising to reverse cuts that are planned for post-next election or to sign up to them, is is that is that is that actually the debate and discussion for Labour now, or is that a false kind of position? Where do you stand on that? Is that do they find themselves between the rock and the hard place on that one? I think it's 
I think it's false. Um, ultimately, the debate you want to have is the debate you choose. And I always, I've always looked, I've always um, looked back at what Osborne and Cameron did, and thinking that there are some interesting, or there are as many similarities to what Keir has had to do um, um, from that period as what kind of you know, if you look back to the you know the Blair years and opposition, because what Cameron and Osborne had to do is they had a five-year project, which is to get in a party from you know. A, a, a conservative party that kept losing elections, a toxic brand. Um, five years to fix it. How do we? How do we? You know, change the course. So I think there's. A, I've always thought there's similarities between that project. What Osborne did incredibly cleverly in two thousand and eight, or maybe two thousand seven, two thousand seven, two thousand eight. In one of his speeches, he essentially said, "The next election is going to be fought on the issue of debt." We borrowed too much. That is the election. That is the ground I'm going to fight it on. And they never moved away from that. It's incredible discipline they had. They never moved away from that. And so, and and so they made a whole argument about you know um, uh, um, labour borrowing versus um, you know conservative cuts. Essentially, that was the argument that they made. And because they did that argument for two years, they ended up winning it. Um, I I would say I think because they were so they spent two years making that argument and then convincing people on it, so I think this time Labour's got to pick the argument it wants to fight the election on, and I think it's got to be a combination of um, uh, economic growth. I think that's still the question because I don't think we're going to see the economy growing enough. And for Labour to be the party of economic growth is something that it hasn't been for a number of years. Plus this question of economic competence. And and I don't mean economic competence in a, you know, can you read the budget and can you, you know, can you make sure everything's balanced and all that kind of stuff. It's that basic, that that basic sense. Most of them, I always think of my family, none of my family are political at all. Mm. They don't really care about politics. They don't really know what I do for a living. <laughs> and when they go to the polls, they like most people out there they have a bit of a guttural instinct do i trust that lot with my money mm. or do i trust that lot with the economy or and if the arts and so it, it's got to be much more of a look the, this lot have done serious damage to our economy over the last 12 years they've lost that sense of competence they don't really know how to run it give us a go because we're better at that than them and i think that is where it, it's that that is the ground i think labor should start be looking at we're moving from things can only get better in 1997 to, look, let's face it, things couldn't get much worse. Give us a go, right? Well, I think it's so I, I mean, there is there is something I, I think the reality is what Labour will inherit in 2024 is going to be, if it wins, is going to be very, very bad. It's not going to be in a good place because we've got real structural problems with our economy. So I think you, it's got it will have to be a much more um you know realistic argument about what they're going to do and what they're going to inherit not dissimilar to what again what Cameron Osborne said in 2010 but I do think if they can position themselves as the party of economic growth as the party of the new economy um you know um Harold Wilson had the white heat of technology Labour should be the green heat of technology talking about the green economy positioning themselves there and then uh party of economic competence I think those three pillars are, I would say, are kind of some of the groundings that they should be fighting on.
one question I'm asking everyone, Ben. Days like today, do you miss it? Do you miss not being there? I hated days like this. Did I you? absolutely hated days like this. And I used to be renowned in the office for being the grumpiest person. <laughs> I hated days like this because we were in opposition mm. and you can't control anything. The government set has had weeks control of the news agenda. Then it gets all the blanket coverage. You're just there as a commentator. It, I hated days like this. I really did. Um, uh, I didn't like Queen's speeches because that was like, you were irrelevant then. I hated days like this reminded me about why opposition is um, crap because you're irrelevant. I, I found it deeply frustrating. Wow. So no. <laughs> yes, yeah. good answer. Good answer. Stick around, you'll find that being in government isn't uh, isn't always yeah. cracked up to be either. <laughs> ben, it's, honestly, thank you so much. What a pleasure. Hope we can get you on again soon, but thanks for taking the time. Yeah, that was good. Great. And nice to see you again, Tracy, as well. Phew. Good. Well, Kirsty, Guest Fest concludes. Gosh, I feel like we've probably learned quite a lot there. I think in terms of snap reaction to a budget that was only an autumn statement, that was only published a few hours ago, We've heard the perspective of the Labour Party, the SNP, we've dug into some of the detail. What do you what do you feel like we've learned today, if I can ask that? I think what we've discussed a lot today is the politics yeah. of this uh, autumn statement, where it positions Labour in relation to the Conservatives, where it positions the Conservatives and how they're going to try. This is ostensibly a £55 billion damage limitation exercise for the Conservative Party. The question of the Conservative Party right now is how many seats can we claw back from where our inheritance was with that catastrophic trust uh, Kwarteng budget? How, how many seats can we claw back with this sensible restoration of a calm, market-reassuring autumn statement? Uh, we are a very long way away from, a, from an election, but I think right now you would be hard-pressed to find a Conservative MP who genuinely thought that they were in with a shout of winning right now, but mm. Ben is 100% right. You know, two years is a very long time in politics, particularly these days, uh, and and there's no room for complacency. So I think we've talked a lot about the politics of how this feels, what we're going to hear from the Conservative Party, what we're going to hear from the Labour Party. And and actually, you know, if if what we've heard today is right and the, and the debate focuses around growth, well, partly on the blame game, but also on growth and how we get back to growth and how we, you know, we're becoming a kind of, you know, I don't want to say sick man of Europe, but how we drag ourselves out of the sort of national doldrums that, that Britain has languished in, in for for quite a few years. That is an important debate to have. But what misses for me for, for this entire debate, because it's a very kind of mm -hmm. macroeconomic debate, is what it feels like for people on the ground. Yeah, And what it, you know, and the reality of a kind of, you know, a, a country in managed decline right now. How it feels for people on the ground right now is nothing really works. You know, it's very hard to get a doctor's appointment. I can't remember the last time I saw a police officer on my streets, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, my, you know, the, the numbers of, of classroom sizes are squeezing up again. So you've got 33, 34 kids in a classroom as opposed to, to 30, you know. And whilst we've made a lot of progress in a lot of areas, there feels like a sort of, you know, a, you know, a retrograde kind of feeling about just everything is is hard work and effort, and and to to have a debate on macroeconomic levels, 
you know, misses a trick for me here, which is actually where people's real concerns are. Is, yeah, okay, I get all that. Mm. But making the argument about why, you know, getting the growth equation right matters down here, you know, to people in their daily lives is the missing part of the component for me right now. What does it mean for my mortgage? What does it mean for my schools? What does it mean for fighting crime? What does it mean for my hospitals and care? We've got, th- I, looking at the figures the other day, our 6.5 million strong waiting list of the NHS has now risen to 7 million. You know, we're going to have delays in, in cancer patients getting chemotherapy. This is the 21st century Britain and nothing seems to be working for people in their day-to-day lives. How you address that, how you capture a response to that, that is what would set an election alight right now for me. Not some stale, up-in-the-air kind of argument about, you know, macroeconomic policies yeah really interesting and i think that it's it's this all politics is personal but i think at the moment we're just feeling it, it we're, politics is becoming so real and it'll be things like uh help with energy bills is going to be cut back typical bills are going to rise from two thousand five hundred pounds a year to three thousand pounds from april that'll be something that people will cling to absolutely um and i think as well that that's so soon a lot of these other things are in the years to come and they're talked about far away. But that is a real-life impact that is, what, just four or five months away from, from when we're speaking now. Some extra payments, of course, for those on benefits, means-tested benefits, pensioners, etc. Um, so there's, there's that sort of thing in there that, you're right, it makes it so real and it's so important. Well, that's, that's the other thing. Not only does, does nothing really work at the moment, everything's really expensive, expensive yeah. and it doesn't work. So, And the other component that was, was flitted over in this autumn statement, but if the briefings that we've been reading are, you know, are, are, to be, uh, are to be correct, the other thing that's going to hit next March, so not only uh, is some, not all, but some of that energy price guarantee taken away, so my bill's will rise there's still going to be a universal additional payment for people next year but it won't be as high as the payment we've seen from april uh, up until april so not only have we got that hit we've also got the hit of council tax bills mm-hmm. now up until now if you if you were a council that wanted to raise your council tax above 2.99% you'd have to have a local referendum and get majority agreement to be able to do that that cap is now probably going to lift to 5% before you'd have to have a referendum that is going to take average bandy council tax bills above 2000 that is an extraordinary amount of money for people why are we having to pay that we're having to pay that because our social care system is crumbling why does that matter well we've got you know, uh, uh, an exponential growth in, in elderly people who've all got chronic health problems. The numbers of over 80s in this country will double by 2030. That is having a consequential impact on, on the NHS. A lot of the problems with the NHS are about bed blocking and not being able to get people that should not be taking an NHS bed out of NHS wards and back into social care. So there are no parts of the system right now that are functioning correctly and all of these have an impact on everybody else, but the people that end up paying for all of this and paying through the nose are us. Mm. Really fascinating. Of course, of course, we would love to hear your thoughts on the autumn statement and that, the real life impact. We can take you behind the scenes into the politics of this and how all of this works, but what is the real life impact 
for you, as far as you are concerned. You can email us anytime, hello at whitehallsources.com. We will reopen the door to the correspondence unit on next week's episode, so get your emails in at hello at whitehallsources.com and we'll feed those into our discussion next week. I should just say that Oscar was otherwise engaged today. Um, he would have been here, but he got bogged down. Apparently he's got a real job or something, I don't know. Uh, we'll catch up with an Oscar another time soon. What a great day we've had then. Okay, lots of advisors for you to get your teeth stuck into there. Um, former advisors, etc. Kirsty, thank you for being here. It is a great thank pleasure, you. as always. Uh, we will be back next Thursday. Make sure you follow and subscribe to Whitehall Sources. Thanks for being a part of the podcast, and we'll speak to you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.